On January 31st, 1847, a ragtag group of men left a collection of winter settlements in California on a rescue mission into the Sierra Nevada mountains. Some were volunteers, some were paid to be there, but all were on a mission of mercy. History would come to know them as the first relief. Two men were chosen to be leaders, Aquila Glover and Reason Tucker. And among them were two brothers, pioneers themselves, named John and Daniel Rhodes. They braved swamp, mud as high as their horses' bellies, and then dizzying amounts of snow as they went higher into the mountains. When the snow became four feet deep, they could no longer travel by horse. They made a base camp at a place called Mule Springs and made plans to set out on foot as they continued the journey. They lost the first members of the party before they could even leave. Some of the younger men were left behind at the camp to care for the horses. Three more, all who'd been there for the money, dropped out. The money, they decided, wasn't enough to risk their lives for. The remaining members of the First Relief left on February 11th. Each man carried with them a hatchet, a tin cup, and a blanket. Each man also held between 50 and 75 pounds of meat and flour. They hiked in single file in the hard-crusted snow, each man walking in the footprints of the man in front of them. When the leader who broke the trail wore down, he took the spot at the back of the line, and the next man took his place. When they started the journey, they were told others would follow, so they marked a trail by setting fire to every dead pine tree they encountered. At the end of every three days, after making 15 or 20 miles, they wrapped and tied up a small bundle of meat and hung it up in a tree. This lightened their load and also ensured they would have food for the return journey. As the party climbed higher, the snow became deeper. Frustration grew with every step. Eventually, they stopped to craft some snowshoes from pine boughs and rawhide strips. They were clumsy at best. When the snow became soft and wet from the sun, it stuck so badly to the shoes in heavy clumps, they were useless. But the first relief marched on. On February 13th, they reached Bear Valley. The snow was at least 10 feet deep. The crust was hard, though, so they didn't sink into it, usually. When they did, it took several people to pull a man out. That was too much for three more of the party. They turned back. But the seven remaining members of the First Relief pressed on. Storms continued to dump fresh flakes on the trail, but the team kept moving. They burned more dead pine trees as markers, left more caches of food for themselves or others to use, and gradually ascended the western slope of the Sierras. When two men became ill from altitude sickness, others carried their packs. Just as the party thought the worst was behind them, they were hit by another major snowstorm. But they kept going, climbing another 15 miles closer to the summit. Their destination lie just on the other side. The first relief made it almost to the summit on February 17th. They'd only traveled eight miles since their last camp, fighting their way through snow that was now nearly 30 feet deep. The next morning, the seven men looked out from the summit toward the east. They saw no signs of life, only an ice-covered lake and miles and miles of unending snow. They began to descend just after noon and walked the entire afternoon. By the time they reached Truckee Lake, the sun was starting to go down. They crossed the frozen lake, walking toward the trees where they'd been assured they would find cabins and 
hopefully people who were still alive, but they saw nothing. No trace of cabins or shelters, just piles and piles of snow. The men began shouting so that anyone alive in the camp would be able to hear them. As they did so, they suddenly saw movement in a snowbank. A woman emerged from a hole in the snow, and as they approached, more people began to appear. They looked like skeletons or ghosts, a sight that none of the men from the First Relief would ever forget. The first woman to reach them cried out the first words that greeted the rescue party. She asked them, Are you men from California, or do you come from heaven? This was the first contact that the survivors of the Donner Party had had with the outside world after being trapped at Truckee Lake almost four months earlier. For some, it seemed the nightmare was over, but for others, the horror had only just begun. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our new season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. We have a long road ahead of us this season, traveling to America's forests, farms, and fields with tales of witchcraft and hexes, cults and curses, calamities and cannibalism, massacres and mysterious disappearances, and more magic, mayhem, sinners and spirits than we've ever offered before. This is episode number 10 of the season, the first part in a two-part series within a series on the legends, lore, history, and hauntings of the Donner Party, the most infamous story in the history of the American West. Most people know how this story ends, with cannibalism in the mountains, but most don't know how they ended up snowbound in the mountains in the first place, or about the acts of bravery, courage, sacrifice, and incredible horror that took place during their journey. But we're going to change all that. So get ready for a story you won't soon forget. Let's be honest, most people today don't know much about history as the old song goes. They might know who won the Civil War, but can't name more than one or two of the battles that were fought. They might know that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, but have no idea where it happened. They might have heard of the OK Corral, but can't name anyone who took part in the famous gunfight that was near it, not in it, but Wyatt Earp. But if you mention the Donner Party, they can immediately reply with one word, cannibalism. That's all most people know about the Donner Party because that's the sensational story that newspapers spread across the country starting in 1847, after the survivors were rescued from the Sierra Nevadas. But the story of the Donner Party went on to become a cautionary tale of America's quest for manifest destiny, the belief in the divine right for the United States to stretch from coast to coast. In the 1840s, America started spreading westward across the Mississippi River and beyond. They were drawn west for various reasons, fleeing from sickness, from slavery in the south, from money problems, because of a hunger for land, or even just because they wanted a new adventure. After a financial depression in the late 1830s, America just naturally grew to the west. We'd purchased vast pieces of land from France only a few decades earlier. We shared control of the Oregon Territory with Britain, although we'd soon own that too. 
and California in the Southwest was then being illegally settled by Anglos, who were defying the authority of Mexico. In fact, as the Donners were traveling west to settle in California, the United States was at war with Mexico and eventually seized the entire region for itself. A journey to the west to settle in Oregon or California in those days meant packing up the entire family with all your belongings in a wagon that would become your home for the next several months. Now, this was common knowledge, but knowing it did nothing to prepare travelers for the ordeals of the trail. They imagined building new homes in the bright, shining lands of the West, but the strain of getting there proved to be far worse than any guidebook could have hinted at. They traveled farther in distance than most had traveled in their entire lives, but the distance in miles mattered less than the distance in time. It usually took about four to four and a half months to reach the far west, and the trip became a race against the seasons, in which timing made the difference between success and failure, as the Donner Party would eventually find out. Late April or early May was the best time to depart. If a wagon train started too early in the spring, there wouldn't be enough grass on the prairie to graze the cattle. On the other hand, a train that left after other trains had already departed would find campsites marked by trampled grass and foul water holes. But if there was one thing that all the guidebooks to Western travel agreed upon, it was not to get caught in the mountain passes when winter arrived. Now, there were various ways to travel, but a family man usually chose a wagon. It was the slowest option, but it provided space and shelter for children and for a wife who was, more likely than not, pregnant. A new wagon could cost anywhere from $60 to $90, which is between $2,000 to $2,500 today. And a wise man would buy as many spare parts as he could afford. Wagons weren't just a way to travel, they were home. The immigrants called their combination parlor kitchen bedrooms prairie schooners, but if overloaded, they would wear out the draft animals on rough terrain, and the loads had to be lightened. Many family heirlooms ended up dumped on the side of the trail. Where after choosing a wagon, the immigrant then had to select his draft animals. Horses were expensive, so travelers generally reserved them for saddle riding. The real choice was between mules and oxen. Mules were smart and tough, but they could be stubborn. Oxen pulled heavier loads, would eat anything, didn't run away at night, and were stolen less often by Native Americans on the trail. But they were slow, and they were some of the dumbest animals alive. No matter what animal the immigrant chose, he needed plenty of them. Generally, at least two teams of mules or two yokes of oxen were needed to pull a loaded wagon. If more than this minimum could be had, so much the better. With extra animals to share the load, the chance that they would last the entire journey was increased. A few wealthier immigrants took several wagons and sets of oxen and even hired teamsters to drive them, but most pioneers were not well off. They were men of ordinary means with a wife and four or five children, all of whom pitched in to manage one wagon or perhaps four animals. The biggest problem encountered by most immigrants was what to bring along with them. Most wagons only measured about 10 feet by 4 feet in size. In addition to all their goods, the smallest children usually rode in the bed, so room was needed for them too. And no matter how carefully it was packed, it had to be unpacked every night so that the tent could be set up and food could be prepared. Everyone needed clothing, tools, guns, and especially food, but most immigrants tended to overpack, at first anyway. 
bringing along books and china, furniture, and even iron stoves, most of which ended up being tossed out somewhere along the way. Even if settlers packed up all the staples from flour to sugar, coffee, crackers, dried meat, it was never enough. Some pioneers killed buffalo or antelope along the trail to provide meat for their party, but a more dependable supply came from herds of cattle that were led behind the wagon. They also used the cows for milking purposes too. Surplus milk was churned into butter simply by hanging it in pails beneath the jostling wagon. At day's end, the butter would be ready. No churning by hand was needed. With wagons loaded and animals assembled, all that remained for the pioneers to do before departing was to organize themselves. That usually consisted of naming a wagon train captain and a few officials. The captain would then make most of the decisions, like when the party started out in the morning, when they stopped at noonday, and where they camped for the night. Unfortunately, his reward was usually a lot of criticism for his poor judgment, especially if the party started later than it should have. George Donner would eventually become the leader of the wagon train that history is called the Donner Party, but it didn't start out with that name. In fact, the Donner Party was the last name given to the group that started out from Springfield, Illinois in the spring of 1846. The Donners were a restless family that often moved from place to place, so it was no surprise they ended up going west. They'd started in Pennsylvania, then moved to Kentucky, where George Donner married Susanna Halley and had six children. After that, they began farming in Indiana and finally moved to Illinois, where George settled with his father, his brother Jacob, sister Susanna, and all the assorted husbands, wives, and children. By this time, George's wife had passed away, but in 1829, he married again and had two more daughters. In 1837, his second wife, Mary, also died, and for a time, George went to live in Texas. He only stayed there until 1839 and then came home to Illinois, where he met a schoolteacher named Tamsin Dozier. They were married a short time later and had three more daughters together. George was, by this time, 30 years older than his new wife, but they were very happy together and she would stay by his side until the very end. The other half of the Donner Party that would leave Springfield was led by James Reed, who grew up in Virginia and came west to Illinois to work in the lead mines in Galena. James Reed always chased his fortune, making it and losing it several times before settling in central Illinois. His journey to California would be not only to make a new fortune in real estate in the West, but also to escape crushing debt in Illinois. After settling near Springfield, James served briefly in the Black Hawk War with another young man who was making a name for himself in the area, Abraham Lincoln. The two men became close friends and Lincoln later became Reed's attorney. Reed almost convinced Lincoln to accompany his family to California, but Lincoln's young wife, Mary, refused to live in a wagon for four months. Reed made many other friends and was almost married to a woman named Elizabeth Keyes, the daughter of a family friend. But she died before the wedding during a cholera epidemic. So Reed ended up marrying her sister, Margaret, instead. She was a widow with a daughter named Virginia who became very close with James and always thought of him as her father. The Reeds had three more children and shared a home with Sarah Keyes, Margaret's mother, who helped with the children because Margaret often suffered from terrible migraine headaches. In 1837, Reed became involved in the first railroad line in Illinois. It was started with the best of intentions, but ended in disaster. 
Reed had invested in it heavily and helped build a town around a sawmill that became known as Jamestown in his honor. And when it all fell apart, Reed found himself deeply in debt. He turned to his trusted attorney, Abraham Lincoln, for help and advice, and Reed declared bankruptcy. He decided he needed a fresh start and became determined to go west, where one of Lincoln's nephews, William Todd, had already settled. Lincoln compiled a list of Reed's assets for the bankruptcy, carefully leaving out a large sum of money that Reed would hide away until he left for California. So Abe wasn't always honest. Reed began selling things off and making plans for a trip west, which is how we learned that George Donner and his family were also going to California. The two families were not close friends, but they were acquainted and decided to band together and make the journey. In the early spring of 1846, the Donners and Reeds finished their plans to go west. Part of their preparation meant seeking out maps and guidebooks to the western regions, and the one book they happened on and became completely obsessed with was one called The Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California by a real estate promoter named Lansford Hastings. Now, you've probably heard the old adage, don't believe everything you read. Well, if you have, it was probably started because of this book. Hastings had written the book in 1845, and Reed and the Donners were especially interested in a shortcut that he devised that would shave weeks off the last leg of their journey into California. There was one problem, though, and even though they didn't know it, Hastings had never actually taken his own shortcut. He had invented it based on maps to try and promote land in California. It would later turn out that the only people who managed to navigate the shortcut nearly died. Well, there were no fatalities on that trip, but the Donners wouldn't be so lucky. Preparations continued. The Donners hired Teamsters to drive their wagons. George and Jacob Donner had three wagons each, as did James Reed. The wagons were overloaded with household goods and furniture, you know, all the things I already mentioned that get left behind on the trail, and it was worse than that. The Reeds had one wagon for Grandma Keys, who refused to stay behind in Springfield. She wanted to see her son, Robert, who was already in California. The Pioneer Prairie Palace, as some dubbed it, and this was not a kind nickname, had a cook stove, bunks, and a huge feather bed on the second level for Sarah to sleep on while they traveled. They'd also packed 200 pounds of food for each adult and 100 pounds for every child. Even though they planned to stock up the wagons in Independence, Missouri, the last civilized town before the frontier, they still packed salt, sugar, cornmeal, apples, guns, and ammunition. They also packed hundreds of pounds of cloth, glass bead necklaces, pocket mirrors, and glass rings to trade with the Indians along the way. Well, these were all mistakes they'd eventually pay dearly for. Well, on April 10, 1846, the two groups left their respective homes with plans to meet up and continue into Springfield. The parties consisted of 23 family members, mostly children under the age of 10, and nine employees, including Teamsters and Cooks. A young man named Milt Elliott worked for the Reeds, but he was almost part of the family, so close to the Reeds that he called Margaret by the nickname of Ma. The two groups rolled into the Springfield Square so they could meet with friends who wished them well. Among them was Mary Lincoln. Her husband was out of town on the law circuit. I would guess that when she saw the wagons, she was pretty happy about her decision not to go to California. 
Well, it was late afternoon by the time the handshaking, hugging, and farewells were over, and the wagon train started out on the trail, making it all the way to the west side of town before they stopped for the night. It was not a great start. That night, though, they celebrated with a few more friends, got better acquainted, and made plans with those left behind to raise a toast to the east on July 4th to everyone still in Springfield. Their friends there agreed to a toast to the west at the same time, bridging the distance between the many miles. The Donners and Reeds set out the following day, heading for Independence, Missouri. They traveled west and crossed the Mississippi River at Hannibal on steam ferries and eventually arrived in Independence on May 10th. After resting, replenishing their supplies, and meeting with other immigrants, the nine Reed and Donner wagons and all their cattle followed the Santa Fe Trail out of town. The Oregon and California trails followed this old trail for some distance before splitting off. It was suggested that wagons try and travel at least 18 to 20 miles each day to make it to California before there was snow in the mountains. But according to Hiram Miller, one of the Donner's Teamsters, they managed to only go four miles before stopping for the night. But they kept going. Traveling west, crossing the Big Blue River and crossing the border that took them out of the United States and into present-day Kansas. Their plan was to catch up with the larger wagon train they'd heard about while in Independence. There was safety in numbers as they ventured out into the unknown. Within a week or so, the Donners and Reeds caught up with the larger wagon train, led by Colonel William Russell, a former Kentucky lawyer and politician. From that point on, the Donners and Reeds stayed intact, but their small party would never be the same. The numbers would change with people joining up and dropping out, but the Donners and Reeds were now members of the Russell Party and would be for some time to come. After a night of celebrating the new members, the caravan departed on May 20th, 1846. The journey from Kansas to the mountains of California would take the next five months. Now, I won't subject you to a step-by-step -step account of the drudgery of the trail, but I will recount some of the high and low points of the trip until the Donners and Reeds reached Fort Bridger in present-day Wyoming, which marked the point when things went really off the rails. All of what we know about this trip west comes from the writings of the survivors, especially Virginia Reed and Eliza Donner. Virginia was 12 when the journey began, and she later wrote an account from her memories. Eliza was only three, but some of her memories, especially those from that terrible winter, were vivid and nightmarish. And using accounts from others in the party who also survived, she also compiled a book. I used both of their writings, as well as other diaries and accounts, when I put together my own story of the Donners, a book called Forlorn Hope. But the story of the trip west by the Donners and Reeds was not that much different from every other immigrant story from the mid-19th century. There were storms, Native American encounters, floods, dry stretches with no water, food that was hard to find, exhaustion, and trail dust that seeped into every nook and cranny of the wagon and those who rode in it. Women were the unsung heroes of the Western Trail. The men took the glory, hunting antelope and buffalo and dealing with the hazards of the trail, but the women were the ones who kept things moving. They cooked, they gathered water, they gathered wood, and when wood couldn't be found, they gathered dried buffalo dung to use for fires. They cared for their broods of children, washing the clothing, tended to the sick, and took care of the dying. And the first death that took place on the trail occurred on May 29th, when elderly Sarah Keyes took her last breath. 
Her health had continued to decline as the caravan traveled, and finally, she went no further. A coffin was built for her, and she was buried near the Big Blue River. The Russell party moved on across Kansas. People came and went from the party, and tensions were raised when some of the single men in the party began complaining about how slow everyone was moving with all those women and children they were dragging along. Finally, a group of about 20 wagons decided to leave the larger party and continue on alone. The endless days of open prairie and the discomfort of the trail took a toll on everyone. Sickness, injuries, and broken down wagons forced many to fall behind. Some joined other caravans, others gave up and went home. Bickering and violence sometimes occurred, but they always seemed to involve some members of the party more than others. Well, a new addition to the party was a German immigrant named Louis Kiesberg, who had few friends among the immigrants. He was only tolerated by some of the other Germans in the group. He was a tall, blonde, handsome man, but standoffish and with a terrible temper. He was abusive to his wife, Philippine, and his daughter, Ada, and just about everyone else he met. And believe me, we'll hear more about Kiesberg in the story to come. We'll also hear a lot about the young man who would later threaten to kill Keysburg. His name was William Eddy, one of the heroes of our story. Eddy was a carriage maker from Belleville, Illinois, and he had joined up with the Russell Party in the spring of 1846 with his wife, Eleanor, and their two children, James and Margaret. Eddy was a likable man and a skilled hunter. He made friends early on when he stopped to repair a broken down wagon that belonged to a former Chicago man named Edwin Bryant and some of the other single men. And Eddie would continue his often selfless acts throughout the rest of our story. In June, the immigrants encountered their first buffalo, which would become an important part of their diet for many weeks to come. In those days, the buffalo still covered the plains for as far as the eye can see, providing life for the nomadic Native Americans of the region and to the Russell Party and others. They continued on into Nebraska, where Edwin Bryant, who had studied medicine but never actually became a doctor, was asked to treat a boy who had been injured in another wagon train. The boy had fallen from a wagon and been crushed by the wheel. By the time Edwin was summoned to the camp, gangrene had already set in on the boy's leg. Edwin refused to try and amputate it, so the task fell to a French-Canadian cattle driver in the camp, who said that he'd watched a lot of operations, but had never tried one. Well, he did what he could with a butcher's knife, a handsaw, and a chisel, but it was already too late. The boy didn't survive the operation, and Edwin never forgot the incident, as you might imagine. Soon after, Colonel Russell became too sick to lead the group, and so leadership was taken over by former Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs. Now the newly named Boggs Party continued heading west. In mid-June, as the caravan approached Fort Laramie, a group of the single men, led by Edwin Bryant, decided to break off from the main group and continue on their own. They reached the fort several days before the rest of the party did. Fort Laramie was considered the point of no return for Western travelers. It was now closer to continue on to Oregon or California than to try and turn back to the United States. It was not a military fort, but a place for trappers, traders, settlers, and Native Americans to meet, buy supplies, or exchange news from east to west. It supplied a large portion of the region, as did a nearby trading post called Fort Bernard. It was at Fort Bernard that the Boggs Party ran into an old friend of James Reed and Abraham Lincoln. His name was James Kleiman, and they had all served together during the Black Hawk War. 
Kleiman now had a reputation as a respected mountain man and trapper. He was leading a group from California back to Missouri when he crossed paths with Reed and the others. And he gave his old friend some excellent advice, which of course Reed and the others ignored. Kleiman had recently met none other than Lansford Hastings, the author of the guidebook that the Reeds and Donners had planned their entire trip around. Kleiman was shocked to discover that Hastings knew nothing about California. He never even crossed the Sierra Nevadas. Kleiman told Reed that following Hastings' shortcut through the Wasatch Mountains to California was dangerous and could be deadly. Don't do it, he told the Reeds and the Donners, but they were convinced the path was a shortcut, and although they parted on good terms, Reed had no intention of following the advice of his old friend. Of course, later, he'd wish he'd listened. According to tradition on the trail, it was necessary to reach a place called Independence Rock by July 4th if you wanted to safely reach California before the winter snows. Well, the Barks party didn't make it. They celebrated July 4th, though, with a big party that included food, music, and liquor, raising glasses to their friends in the East, and they used the holiday to rest for two days, washing their clothing, hunting for food, and making plans to leave on July 6th. They were now at least a full week behind schedule. Several families, including Lilburn Boggs, the captain of the group, decided to leave the main party and continue on their own. Well, this caused chaos among the rest of the group. James Reed was eager to return to the trail, even though he believed the lost time could be made up by using the Hastings shortcut. He was still convinced it was the right way to go, especially after a traveler from the West passed through camp with a message from Lansford Hastings himself, who urged everyone to take his new route by leaving the main trail at Fort Bridger and going around the south end of the Great Salt Lake, which he said would cut 200 miles off the length of their journey. Spoiler alert, it wouldn't. The group that included the Reeds and the Donners pressed on, competing with the Boggs Party for water and grass over the miles that followed. On July 18th, they reached the Continental Divide and Pacific Springs on the other side. It was an important moment, ruined only by a group of the party's oxen being poisoned after they drank water from puddles filled with tainted water. Three of the oxen died, which put the group further behind for a day. By the time they made it to the next camp, they were exhausted. But before they could sleep, they had to elect a new captain to lead them on. Several men were considered, including James Reed, but too many believed him to be headstrong and arrogant. When the decision was finally made, they settled on the hardworking, reliable, and likable George Donner. The newly named Donner Party got back on the trail on July 20th, four months after the Donners, Reeds, their friends, and employees left Illinois. The first order of business was to divide the group again. They'd reached the point in the trip where those bound for Oregon would take a different trail than those heading for California. The largest group to remain with the Donners were the Murphy, Foster, and Pike families. It consisted of 36-year-old widow Lavina Murphy, her seven children, and their children. They were also joined by the Breen family, Patrick and Margaret, and their children. They were Irish immigrants who, along with another Irishman, Patrick Dolan, had joined the party at Fort Laramie. They will play an important role in the events to come, too, and will also become my least favorite members of the group. 
The Donner Party was eager to reach Fort Bridger, where they would leave the trail and take the Hastings shortcut. When they did arrive, they were disappointed to find that Lansford Hastings was not there, even though he'd given his word that he would be through the messenger who had recently visited their camp. They found out he had just left to lead another group of immigrants to California on his famous shortcut. James Reed and George Donner were unhappy, but were assured by their hosts, famous mountain man Jim Bridger and his partner, Luis Vasquez, that the trail would be easy to follow. Bridger and Vasquez share as much blame for what happened to the Donner Party next as Lansford Hastings does. They knew the shortcut was dangerous and an unproven trail, but didn't tell anyone because they wanted the business that the shortcut brought them. But it wasn't as though the Donner Party hadn't already been warned. They'd ignored advice from James Kleiman, and at Fort Bridger, they refused to listen to warnings from Joseph Walker, a respected mountain man and guide, and from Edwin Bryant, a friend and a man they knew. Well, they would have been warned by Edwin Bryant if they knew that he'd left them a warning. Edwin Bryant, the single man who'd gone ahead of the rest of the Donner Party, had arrived at the fort first. He'd been warned not to try and take the shortcut with wagons. Joseph Walker believed it could only be done with mules, so Bryant and the others had sold their gear and departed as a mule train. Before leaving, Edwin left a warning letter for Reed and Donner in the safekeeping of Bridger and Vasquez, who never gave it to them. Would it have changed their mind? We'll never know. The Donner Party, unaware of Edwin's letter, spent their time at Fort Bridger spending money, which is what their hosts had wanted. They purchased new oxen and supplies and prepared for the final leg of their trip. George Donner hired a new driver, 16-year-old Jean-Baptiste Trudeau, who had been hanging around the fort. Finally, 74 men, women, and children traveling in 19 wagons left the main trail and headed off into the unknown. The first few days went reasonably well, even if they only made it 27 miles. But then came day three, when some of their oxen went missing. And then while Virginia Reed was riding with Edward Breen, the boy's horse fell in the mud and Edward broke his leg. He was forced to ride in the wagon for the rest of the trip, enduring every bump in the road. His parents expected his leg to be healed in eight weeks, long after they had arrived in California. Well, it would be healed in eight weeks, all right, but they were still in Nevada at the time. It took them seven days to reach one of the landmarks on the trail, Weber Canyon. But when they got there, they found a note left behind by Lansford Hastings, who was guiding the caravan ahead of them. He said the canyon was impassable. Now, this was something that would have been in his guidebook if he'd actually been to any of the places in the guidebook before. That was the first major problem with the shortcut route, but it wouldn't be the last. Finally, I think that James Reed might have been questioning following the Hastings shortcut. He, along with William Pike and a young man from Chicago named Charles Stanton, decided to ride ahead, find the party ahead of them, and get some straight answers from Lansford Hastings. They caught up with that other party on August 8th. Reed had stewed about the situation during the ride, and when he met Hastings, he was not impressed. But Hastings assured him he had a backup plan for the Donner Party. He took Reed up to the top of a nearby mountain, gave him some directions, pointed out some landmarks, and then went back to the camp. That turned out to be the last time anyone from the Donner Party ever saw Lansford Hastings. 
and it was almost the last time anyone saw Charles Stanton and William Pike. Reed rode back to the Donner Party to pass on the new information, but Stanton and Pike stayed behind to rest. They got lost trying to get back and were close to eating their horses before they were found by the rest of the group several days later. Meanwhile, Reed rode east on an Indian trail to find the rest of the party. He thought the trail might work to get the group around Weber Canyon. He arrived in camp on August 10th and they began pushing along the path that Reed had found, still believing the shortcut was going to save them time. Well, they made it five miles the first day, which was a miracle. The trail was perfect for a man on horseback, but not for wagons, women, children, and livestock. They had to cut down trees and clear brush just to make it through. It was slow going and brutal work. Soon after the struggle to get through the Wasatch started, they were joined by an Illinois man named Franklin Graves and his family. They had been behind the Donner Party for most of the summer and had also left the trail at Fort Bridger. They were greeted warmly and then handed shovels and axes and put to work. The party of now 87 people cut an eight-mile road through the dense wilderness, only to find the canyon they were in came to a dead end. Many of the party were so angry they threatened to leave and continue on their own, but George Donner managed to calm everyone down. They were on the right path, he said. They just needed to make an adjustment, and he was right. Many miles and 19 different river crossings later. The Donner Party was now 18 days behind schedule. And big surprise, things were about to get a lot worse. The caravan made it out of the Wasatch Mountains and rolled into the salt flats of the Great Salt Lake Desert. It was hot, dry, and there was hardly any fresh water to be found. Tamsin Donner had been caring for a sick member of the party, a young man named Luke Halloran. And he died on August 11th, but the number of people in the party stayed the same. Philippine Kiesberg, the wife of the disliked Louis Kiesberg, gave birth to a healthy baby boy. But that was not enough to make anyone feel better about Luke's death. Many in the party were disgruntled, blaming Reed for convincing them to follow the Hastings shortcut. The whispers and accusations would just get worse in the days to come. On August 28th, they stopped at a place called Hope Springs, but it wasn't hope they found there. They found the message left behind that told them they were about to cross a two-day, two-night stretch of harsh desert. Well, the party was shocked and angry. Hastings' guidebook had claimed that the upcoming desert crossing was flat and easy and be could be easily crossed in a day and a night with a few brief rests. Instead, it was twice as long and one last surprise there was no water. They set off on August 30th to cross 83 miles of desert. By now, most of those they had traveled with, like Edwin Bryant and his mule train, had already reached California. The Donners were the last wagon train on the California trail for the season, but they had no time to worry about who was ahead of them. They were alone, and by the time they reached the middle of the desert crossing, they were desperate. The caravan strung out for miles with the Eddie and Graves families in the lead. Everyone walked to lighten the strain on the oxen. They walked by day in relentless heat and at night wrapped in blankets against the chill. By the third day, their water was gone. James Reed knew that soon the oxen would stop moving and just lay down and die. If that happened, they would be stranded. He decided to ride out alone and find water. 
Other families were in the same predicament. They abandoned their wagons and marched on with the oxen. Ahead of them, they could see Pilot Peak, where grass and water awaited them, but it was still far away. James Reed rode ahead to the peak, where he found water to take back to his family. Along the return trip, he met with teamsters who were driving cattle and horses. He warned them that if the cattle caught the scent of water, they would stampede and might become lost. Want to guess what happened next? When the caravan crossed the desert, the animals all broke into a run toward the water and got lost. It meant days of delays trying to find them, and some were never found at all. There were 38 animals lost altogether. Several wagons filled with everything to start a new life had been abandoned on the salt flats. After some rest and water, Reed and some of the other men returned to the desert to salvage what they could carry from the wagons, but most of their belongings had to be left behind, including many of their prized possessions. Patty Reed, who was eight, couldn't leave everything behind. She carefully hid a doll that had been given to her by her grandmother, Sarah Keys, in the hem of her apron. She would keep it with her for the rest of her life, even during the terrible times in the mountains to come. The party was back on the trail by September 11th. They were now even further behind schedule and hungry. There was little food to sustain them. They still had some distance to go and no supplies. Charles Stanton, a single man with no family but many friends, volunteered to go ahead to California and return to the group with supplies. William Big Bill McCutcheon agreed to go with him. He only asked that his wife Amanda and daughter Harriet be allowed to travel in the wagon with the reeds. Well, they rode off, hoping to return soon with food and supplies. Well, the party continued on with what meager things they had left. Horses were stolen by Native Americans. Oxen stumbled and couldn't work, but they kept moving. They would soon reach the Humboldt River, where they could leave the shortcut and return to the California Trail. They hoped that Stanton and McCutcheon would return with food by then. They continued to travel, finding fresh water and game to tide them over. When they reached the river, they decided to break into two groups, with the Donners taking the lead. Their livestock was in better shape, and they would break the trail, leaving the Reeds, the Eddies, and others who were moving more slowly to follow behind. Over the next several days, they traveled this way, plagued by Paiute Indians who lived in the area who kept stealing their livestock. There seemed to be nothing they could do to stop them. Soon they were again out of food and supplies. William Eddy and others tried to hunt, but found nothing. And there was still no sign of Stanton and McCutcheon. And then the event occurred on October 5th that changed everything. The Reeds, the Graves, Keysburg, and Breen families were following behind the Donners and had to climb a steep and sandy slope along the Humboldt River. The caravan had to stop before climbing the hill and double-team the oxen so they could pull the wagons up the incline. Two wagons had already made it up the hill and a third wagon belonging to the Graves family was ready to go next. One of their teamsters, John Snyder, decided not to wait for a second set of oxen. He thought he could pull the wagon up with just two animals. He couldn't, and he was getting angry, cracking the whip on the animals and trying to force them on. Behind Snyder was Milt Elliott, who was driving a family wagon that belonged to the Reeds and was being shared with the Eddy family. He'd already hitched up the second yoke of oxen and was ready to start up the hill, but couldn't because Snyder was in the way. 
Tempers were short and things became heated when Milt became impatient and just went around Snyder and climbed the hill. Snyder shouted at him in the two exchanged words. Then Snyder purposely ran his oxen into those being driven by Milt and they became tangled up. Snyder started beating the oxen with the wooden handle of his whip. James Reed rode up to the scene and tried to reason with Snyder, even offering the use of some of his oxen to help pull the wagon up the hill. But Snyder was enraged and began cursing at Reed. We can settle this when we get up the hill, Reed told him. No, we can settle it now, Snyder said, and he swung his whip handle at Reed and struck him in the head. Reed went down, bleeding. Snyder jumped down from his wagon and began beating Reed with the whip. He might have killed him if Margaret Reed had not rushed between them. Reed only had time to call out Snyder's name before he swung the whip again and this time hit Margaret with it. Well, that was too much for James. His hunting knife was suddenly in his hand and he stabbed Snyder, puncturing his left lung. Snyder fell and died moments later. James Reed soon found himself outnumbered by those in the camp who were not his friends. While he was recovering from his wounds that night, they plotted around the campfire, refusing to ignore Snyder's death. They blamed Reed for killing him, just as they blamed him for the Hastings shortcut, running out of food and anything else they could think of. Louis Kiesberg suggested that they hang Reed and some of the others, including the Graves family, would have gone along with it if Milt Elliott and William Eddy made it clear they weren't going to let that happen. It was finally agreed that Reed would be banished from the party. He would be forced out with his horse, the clothes on his back, and nothing more. Without food or weapons, his chances of survival were very low, and most considered Reed's banishment to be a death sentence. At first, Reed refused to accept this. He couldn't leave his wife and children alone. He'd done nothing wrong. He defended himself and his wife. But his friends convinced him to leave and not endanger his family. They also told him that Stanton and McCutcheon had still not returned. Maybe they never would. But if Reed made it over the Sierras, he could return with supplies. Reed, once he knew his family would be cared for, agreed to leave. His departure was a great loss to the entire company. They'd banished one of the best, most resourceful men in the company who had only acted in self-defense. It was later said that if George Donner had been there instead of miles ahead with his own group, the verdict against Reed would have been different. Even so, Reed did not leave as empty-handed as his enemies imagined. That night, Virginia Reed and Milt Elliott slipped out of the camp in the darkness and met Reed with his rifle, ammunition, and food. Virginia tried to go with him, but he wouldn't allow it. Without wagons and livestock, Reed rode fast and hard. In two days, he met the Donners and gave them a short version of the story. Stressing he was going for supplies since Stanton and McCutcheon had not returned. He stayed the night in the Donner camp and rode off the next morning, joined by Walter Heron, one of the Teamsters, and went on toward California. Back in the camp, the remaining immigrants tried to rally their spirits and move on, but as Virginia Reed later wrote, all life seemed to have left the party, and the hours dragged slowly on. The party was plagued by bad luck, lack of food, and the constant harassment of the Paiute Indians, who rightfully resented the wagon trains that passed through their lands. They stole horses and killed cattle, anything to hamper the party, causing the settlers to fall further and further behind schedule. On October 7th, it was learned that one of the party was missing, an old man named Hardcoop, who was a driver for Lewis Keysburg. 
He was found by William Eddy, who discovered that Kiesberg had purposely left the man behind because he was too slow. Kiesberg was told by Eddy that the man was his employee and his responsibility, and he needed to make room for him in his wagon. The next day, Hardcoop found Eddie and told him that Kiesberg had put him out of the wagon again. The old man was unable to walk. Well, Eddie agreed to help him as soon as the caravan stopped for a break. Hours passed, though, and when Eddie went to look for him, he found that Hardcoop had disappeared. Some of the boys driving livestock told him they had last seen him sitting on the side of the road far behind the caravan. Hardcoop's feet were blackened and so swollen they had split open. A signal fire was lit that night in hopes that Hardcoop would see it, but by morning, he'd not made it into camp. Margaret Reed, Milt Elliott, and William Eddy tried to convince Keysburg to go back and look for him, but he refused. Both Patrick Breen and William Graves were asked if a horse could be borrowed to look for them, but both men refused. Eddie and Elliott proposed going back to find Hardcoop on foot, but they were told the rest of the party wouldn't wait for them. Every bit of kindness and charity that the party once possessed was gone. The journey continued to be miserable. They crossed more rough terrain and desert. Wagons were broken down and abandoned. More oxen died. When they reached the banks of the Truckee River, they found fresh water, but no food. It was William Eddy, using a borrowed rifle, who managed to shoot enough geese to feed the group. They traveled along the south side of the river in the days that followed. The canyon they passed through was sometimes so narrow, they were forced to cross the river 27 times. Finally, on October 20th, the Donner Party reached the wide valley known as Truckee Meadows. They were only 40 miles from California and the Sierra Nevadas. Meanwhile, James Reed and Walt Heron had almost made it to California themselves. They ran out of food and likely would have starved if they hadn't met up with a group of settlers in Bear Valley, who were on their way to Sutter's Fort, which was the end of the California Trail. They were surprised while eating by Charles Stanton, who was on his way back to the Donner Party with supplies. McCutcheon had fallen ill and was recovering, but Stanton was on his way back to help his friends with two Miwok Indian guides sent by businessman John Sutter, who had provided Stanton with supplies. On credit, of course, nothing was free with John Sutter. In the camp at Truckee Meadows, though, things were bad. The settlers had given up ever seeing Stanton and McCutcheon again and were scrounging for whatever food they could find. Finally, best friends and brothers-in-law, William Pike and William Foster, who were part of the Murphy, Pike, and Foster clan, decided to go for help. The two young men were loading their saddlebags, preparing for the trip, when Foster's pistol went off by accident and shot William Pike in the back. The wound turned out to be fatal a few hours later. This left his wife Harriet, a widow, at age 18, with two children, one an infant and the other a toddler. After this tragedy, the party was ready to move on. The Breens took the lead. They'd lost fewer cattle and were doing better than most of the others. The Eddies and Keysburgs went with them. The second group was the Murphys, the Graves, and Margaret Reed and her children. Bringing up the rear and traveling at a slower pace were the Donner brothers and their families. The Donner party had not been a unified group for some time, and even within the three factions, the only allegiance that anyone felt seemed to be toward their own family members. Survival was all that mattered to them, but only their own survival. 
They cared nothing for the others in the party, which is why they consistently failed. Each time they faced danger, struggles always erupted between people and among families. They failed to learn that survival didn't depend on being fearless. It was about making decisions, even if the decisions turned out to be wrong. The party had had no leader after James Reed had been banished. George Donner had been elected as captain, but he traveled at the rear of the company and was too friendly and easygoing to make the harsh decisions that sometimes needed to be made. It was that lack of leadership and having someone to make decisions to help them all work together that caused the Donner party to meet with disaster. So the caravan, in three parts, began climbing toward the mountain pass ahead. As they did, the air turned colder and more bitter. Winter was coming to the mountains. There was only one small glimmer of hope as the three separate groups crossed the meadows. It was the arrival of Charles Stanton and his two Miwok escorts, who brought seven mules loaded with flour, tea, jerked beef, coffee, sugar, and beans with them. Stanton was greeted as the returning hero that he was, a man who had no family in the company and yet had risked his life to save them all. He rode to each of the groups, distributing his supplies and bringing Margaret Reed the good news that her husband was alive. But good news was soon in short supply. Later that night, Native Americans attacked the first faction of the group. William Eddy single-handedly fought them off. The next day, the five Donner wagons were closing the gap between themselves and the others when George's wagon snapped an axle and overturned. He and Jacob cut down a tree and began shaping a new axle when a chisel Jacob was using slipped and slashed George's hand. The wound was serious, but Tamsin bandaged it and George good-naturedly laughed it off, saying it was only a scratch. It wasn't, and the wound had consequences that none of them could have anticipated at that moment. Ahead of them, the first two factions had just reached Truckee Lake, a narrow three-mile-long body of water. Just beyond it was the 7,000-foot-high pass to the other side of the mountains, to Sutter's Fort, and safety. All of that was less than 90 miles away. But it had started to snow. Refusing to let that stop them, the first two parties pushed on for the mountain pass. If they could get over it, they could get to safety on the other side. There was only a little snow on the ground around the lake, but the trail up to the past was rapidly being covered by the falling snow. They tried to abandon their wagons, load the oxen, and continue on, but it was no use. The snow was too deep. They returned to the valley below where it was only raining now, and as many as could took shelter in an abandoned cabin. The roof leaked so badly that most ended up sleeping under their wagons during the night. It rained, and then the rain turned to snow. Three feet of snow fell on the lake that night, and even more on the pass. They hadn't accepted it yet, but they were trapped. While some of the settlers began looking for ways to store the meat they had left and tried to repair the abandoned cabin and erect new shelters around the lake, others were determined to try and make it over the pass. This group, led by Stanton and the two Miwoks, included the Reeds, the Graves, and the Eddy families. Louis Kiesberg, who had injured himself when a willow branch had pierced his foot, could barely walk but insisted on coming along, leaving his wife and children behind, of course. The only thing that stopped them was the snow, which was now waist deep and getting worse all the time. By the time they got close to the summit, they could go no further. 
everyone was exhausted, especially the children. Charles Stanton told everyone that he and the Miwoks would scout ahead, and they made it all the way to the summit. Stanton could have kept going and saved himself, but he didn't. He couldn't abandon the people who had become his friends. Instead, he hurried back to tell them that it was just a little further. If they kept going, they could cross the summit and make it over the mountains. But when he returned to the temporary camp, he found they had started a fire by burning an old pine tree and it started looking for places to sleep. He tried to get them up and going, but it was no use. None of them would walk any further. They promised they would try again in the morning. They went to sleep bundled up in their clothing and blankets, insulated by the snow and warmed by the fire. But overnight, it started snowing again. Another foot of snow fell, and the wind blew drifts 10 feet high. The mules were lost, the cattle had wandered off, and the path to the summit was now completely blocked. They were now trapped. There would be no escape from the mountains. Not yet, anyway. And for some of them, not ever. And with that, we end the first part of the story of the Donner Party. We'll be back in two weeks with part two, an episode that will warn you will be brutal and not suitable for all listeners. You see, the real horror of the tale is just about to begin. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. works but right, okay. let's do it all right let's go for it thanks for tuning into the american hauntings podcast the show where we discuss history hauntings legends lore the cold and dark side of american <laughs> history yeah. we're now in season six of the podcast woods and fields dark and wicked dark and wicked yes <laughs> i'm your co-host cody beck and with me is my co-host author historian crime buff and the founder of american hauntings troy taylor hey man how are you how are you living uh, all right. Yeah. Doing okay. So okay. yeah, it's um, you know, gearing up for stuff, you know, planning already planning the conference. I just spent an ungodly amount of money getting I ready bet. for the conference. Well, it's you know, they like to do my gift hotel bags room, and stuff way, for the speakers. Uh, yeah, we like doing gift bags and stuff for the speakers. And sure. you know, it's um and then, of course, you know, me being me being me didn't check before I opened the back of the Jeep. And guess what box falls out like a box of liquor. So, yeah, uh -huh. falls out on the ground. Half of it broke. But, you oh, know, no shit. 
Yeah, it's just been a day. <laughs> it's been a day, I, I gotta bet. say. Uh, oh man. But, oh well, it's all right. I like the background you have now. People can't see, but like I love all the books and the Ouija board and all that stuff. Well, yeah, you know, I've done some interviews and stuff, and people always ask, oh, is that a because a lot of times if I do an interview or something, I'll put up like in that really ugly part right behind me where I've got post-it notes hanging all over the wall oh, sure. and string for conspiracy theories and stuff. Yeah. I usually put up like the American Hauntings banner behind it. Yes. People think it's like a fake background. I'm like, nope, that's just my office. Wall. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. oh, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen Troy's office, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Just a ton of wood and books and like you, you have the coolest shit. Do you have like old radios and like suitcases <laughs> and just tons of books and, and memorabilia and stuff? It's 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 amazing. I love yeah, it. It's just fun. I mean, it's a lot of years of hanging on to stuff, you know. So yeah, I wonder yeah. how many books do you think you own? I have no idea. It's thousands. I don't have any idea. At least I, um, I mean thousands. I don't. I rarely go in a bookstore without buying more. Yeah. You know, every time I get one of those um, bargain book catalogs in the mail, the new arrivals, when they know a sucker, when they see one, because they <laughs> keep sending them to me because they know that every time I'll find stuff I need, you right. know, we'll get them again. So, yeah. I don't know that I'll ever be able to read all of them, but I have read an awful lot of these books. You know, I've heard something about the, uh, that there's merit to buying more books than you can never read because then at least you're surrounded by the fact that there's always more for you to learn. Yes, that is true. That and is I like true. that too. It's like kind of like too. surrounding yourself with ignorance a little bit. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. When there are all these things that you still, that you still have. And I, I keep, I like to, I, I pretend that um, books are like my portrait of Dorian Gray. So as long as I have books I haven't read yet, I'll stay alive. That's wow. my theory. Wow. It's probably okay. not going to happen, but that's my theory. So I love it. I'm getting a younger like Dorian Gray, but at least I'll be alive. So. I tr yeah, I try not to have too much stuff. I, I basically I collect guitars and books, and I, I recently got rid of some guitars, but I, I took some books to Goodwill the other day, and it was like, they were all by some Troy Taylor author, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. God, this Troy shit, I gotta get out of here. But it was like, it was like seven or eight. I was like, I just, I, what if I need to look at Bridget from the- Hey, listen, man, over the years, I have like, I'll get ready to move and I'll go, you know, I could probably let a few of these go. And then I do. And then five years later, I'll be like, didn't I have a book on that guy? Damn it. You yeah. know, so yeah. that happens all the time. I think it's that. And then also it's like the dad thing of like, I have, I can hook up a Nokia phone to a fax machine. Like I have chargers, and like, you know, connected cables to anything. And it's like, you laughed at me. You laughed at me when you wanted me to throw this away. That's a good one. No, I, and I don't, yeah, I, that kind of stuff I do not have. So I have so I many, wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. I was literally going through like cables the other day and I was looking on my counter and I was like, I don't, this is, this is plugged in and I don't know what it charges. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> How many different things can I possibly have? You well, know? that's a, I hate when I hate when stuff has different chargers. Like we have, yeah. I have this one thing that needs like an Android charger. Why well, don't have, that's the only thing I have that needs an Android charger. And then I, I can't, I cannot lose that cable, man. Right. I cannot because it's the one thing I can charge it with. I know I can probably buy another one, but still. Right. 
But you I'm know, not, yeah, I'm not gonna me, buy another one when yeah, I yeah. Why it. should I do that, right? Yeah. So, and I have one. I have this um, electric lighter that I use for candles. So it's like a long stem. Oh, candle. sure, yeah, yeah. And the char- I realized I charged it for the first time the other day. The charger's like two and a half inches. So I had to like <laughs> hang it from something. Yeah. And I was like, what? I f- got a couple speakers like that, like Bluetooth speakers. Like, yeah. Yeah. why in the world would you put a six inch cable on this? Yeah, I mean, it like- makes no sense at all. <sighs> yeah. Technology. Oh, well, man. I know. Well, here we go. 19th century complaints in a 21st century world. Just be an old man <laughs> yeah. yelling at yeah. the sky. Well, well, Troy, so this is going to be a slightly different episode than what we've done before yes. because, um, because of an idea that you had, which was a great idea and that I at first neglected. And I was like, no, 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 no. Well, no. you know, well, yeah, but see the reason why you, yeah, but I understood why you didn't like it because in the past episode, in past seasons, we've had multiple stories that are multiple episodes four, five, six parts. Yeah. yeah. And we are not doing that this season. We've only got two stories that we have to break into two. And this was one of them. Yes. And so my suggestion was, and that we decided to do is to save the majority of our conversation and breakdown of the story for after part two. So, yeah. I mean, they're both pretty long. They're long episodes anyway. Uh, but I think that what we decided we would do is is take care of most of it then. I mean, you know, I mean, the idea you, you did ask me to say a couple of things. And, and I did want to bring one thing up because you asked me why this story of all the stories, all the Western stories. Why does this one? It's like the Black Dahlia story as far yep. as true crime. Why does this story stick with us? And I feel like I sort of. um I kind of answered that a little bit in the monologue because there's one thing that I say towards the beginning is that the Donner Party became like a a cautionary tale mm-hmm. because it happened in the 1840s at the really kind of the, even the beginning of the westward movement. It was an early early on. I mean, a lot of people were going west, but it really wouldn't be until 1849 and into the early 50s when people really started flocking west after the California Gold Rush started. But by then, there were a lot of ships that were going around the tip of South America to get there. But most people still went by, by you know, wagon train across the country. And um, yep. for anybody who watched, and I had a lot of people who've read my book on the Donner Party say, you know, or heard me talk about it. They always say, oh, you know, I watched 1883, that Yellowstone series, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the prequel series. And they're like, Man, it made so much more sense after watching that on TV and then hearing you, you know, the things that you said or or what I read in your book about the wagon at the traveling across the country. It made so much more sense and how easy it was to die doing that, you know, and it's it's I mean, it's a hell of a story. Um, But, you know, when we get into the second half and, and there's been a little of that in the first one, but in the second half. You know, it became a cautionary tale because everybody wanted to talk just like they do now, wanted to talk about the cannibalism. Mm-hmm. That's what everybody that's that's the go to. I mean, that's what everybody wants to talk about. Right. And that's really not I mean, it's a horrible part of the story. And that's why we remember it. But there's so much more to the story, especially it's the second half. The second half, the, the 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 things that people do to survive and to save other people in the second half of the story in, in two weeks. Yeah. Um, if you don't know the rest of the story, I think you're really going to like this next episode. And then, so then Cody and I thought that we would then kind of talk about some of these things and highlight some of the stuff I want to highlight 
um, after the second episode. So this time you will, we're going to, you know, do some of our regular stuff and then we'll probably cut that down a little bit next time and spend more time conversing. So. Absolutely. And dude, like I would, I'll just, I'm just going to put this on the record. I would sure. eat somebody so fast. And if, oh, I, yeah, no, no, me if too. I die, oh, totally. eat yeah. me. What I know. That's what I said here? too. And you know, that's going to come up in the, in the second half. There are, there are a couple of characters that are like, I need you when I die. I need you to eat me. I need you to survive. Yeah. So, I mean, that's going to come up um, because, and I agree with you too. I've always said the same thing that if it was me, you know, stay, stay alive, man. Yeah. Don't, you know, if I can't, you should. Are there, but yeah. I also understand it's also one of, you know, history's man's greatest taboos. I mean, it's just not something that most civilized, so to speak, people do. You, well, know? you know, that's when I feel like, yeah, but at that point, civilization is kind of broken down. Well, there is no, yeah, there is no civilization in those situations. In the, in the there just West. aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I wonder like if we have like doctors or anybody that, that can weigh in, but I'm curious about like, where do you start if you're going to eat somebody so you get sick later? Like I'm trying, I don't, I don't know the best place to start eating someone. Well, I think that you want to avoid brains. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, that's probably. what, it's that's what makes people crazy. Yeah. Right. Or, I mean, it's, there's, or things in your brains that you are not supposed to eat. Right. I think you would start, and this is disgusting conversation. I hope no, you I, I'm hungry. So hear works. this, But, um, you know, I think you're supposed to start with like, you know, a fleshy fatty part of your thighs or your butt or, you know, stuff like that, where there's a lot of meat, you know, I think, I I mean, this is, this is me just guessing. I really don't know, but they do say it tastes like pork. Yeah. Not chicken pork. So, well, that's why, that's why um, cannibals used to call it a long pig when they ate humans. Oh yeah. Pork. Yeah. True story. Yeah. So yeah. Believe me when you, (laughs) You do a lot of you do a lot of research into sure. cannibalism when you write about stuff like this. I, bet. I don't mean firsthand research. I mean, you know, oh, right. historical research. Right. Uh, yeah. As Troy's like non on a thigh. Over uh, there. Yeah, right. Nice yeah, with the that. fava beans and a nice Chianti. Right. Oh, boy. Um, OK, so since this is going to be a little bit different of an episode, but I'm still going to kind of keep a similar format. So let's go ahead and uh, you, you want to talk about some of the stuff you got coming up. Um, well, I, I'll mention as I did, I think I did um, before, we just added some new dinners and River Road tours through the rest of the summer. Uh, we've got a lot of dinners coming up, American Witch. Uh, we just did that one, the Limp Family, St. Louis Exorcism, Wyatt Earp, Lizzie Borden, a bunch of stuff coming up. Uh, so those are coming. Um, check those out at dinnerandspirits.com and keep an eye on that website too, because we will be in the next uh, probably couple of weeks before the conference, we'll be adding some of our fall events for the rest of the year, the October, November, December events. And that will be some different stuff, some new things we haven't done before. I had some folks at a um, one of our, our, at our American Witch thing the other night that had some a really good idea for a presentation that I haven't done in a long, long time. And I think it'll be a lot of fun. So we're going to add that in for the fall. Um, Also, I I do want to announce that speaking at the conference that I do have a new book that's releasing at the conference, you know, as I've done, I didn't do it last year or the year before, because I don't know if you heard, but some kind of pandemic or something. I don't know if you heard about that, but something happened. Yeah, I know. We missed a lot of stuff, but anyway, um, 
so I guess 2019 was the last time I did it, but I'm uh, releasing a book at the conference and then it will be available on the Monday after online for people who won't be at the event. But this one is called um, One Day in the Valley of King, Valley of the Kings. Uh, this is my you're, book you're about now from. Yeah, Hunting, yeah. This right? is my book about Howard Carter and Lord Carnivan and the Curse of Tutankhamun. So um, it's the Curse of the Pharaoh story, but kind of with a different twist, because I'm really going to delve into. Um, well, you know, I'm going to offer all the evidence uh, like I often do, you know, and let people uh, decide what they think. But still, I've got a lot. I've got some material that I have not seen in other places, thanks to my <laughs> my now growing skills of gleaning old newspapers and sure. things. So I had some fun. I had a good time writing this. I just figured. I'd never written a book that was set outside the country before. My right. stuff has always been about American history. And but I thought if I was going to do one and I don't know that maybe I'll never do another one. A buddy of mine just asked me if I ever go, if what I was going to do next. And I said, well, I've got a, plans for other things, but I don't know if I'll ever do another book outside of America. But if I you know, but since I was going to do one, I decided to start with something that I love since I was like nine years old. And this so, is a know. prequel to the movie Stargate. Is that correct? No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> That's awesome. No. Yeah. So it was fun. It was a really fun book to write. And uh, it's got April did a great cover for it. And it, yeah, uh, awesome. yeah, I'm going to do a presentation on it uh, the day before my birthday this fall. So right. I'm doing a dinner thing too. But uh, but yeah, I was excited about this book and I really, um, things have just really come together and I wasn't, I didn't know I would have it done in time for the conference, but it was done well ahead of time. So yeah, uh, that's going to be the I'm release day. I'm not so. surprised that you just, I know, book. I know, uh, Troy, ha while, while I have you, do you like my mustache? Are you upset about it still? Or oh, I'm not. A, why was that? I never said I was upset about it. You have made so many. Jokes I may have made jokes because you had a mustache, I but um, I, I am not upset about it. Are you I can I can only see so well with the camera. Are you going to are you going to wax up the ends until? Oh, like hell yeah. Well? Dude, yeah, no, you should no, dude, do that for the conference. I've never been able to do that before. And now it's grown long enough that I'm like, oh, shit, I actually can. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff up. And just the world can get ready for it because I figured, why not? Life's short. I'm just going to do it. I do that when I go to uh, like the Renaissance Fair in costume. When I do the pirate thing, I, yeah. I curl up the ends. I know. Okay. How long, how long would it take you to grow a mustache like I have right now? Like five days? Mm, I mean, I technically I have a much larger mustache than you right now. But as far as if I wanted to curl up the ends, I could probably you know, a couple, few more days. I could probably do this. <laughs> I just don't. I just like I said, my dad at 15 had a full beard. Just, yeah, right. Right. I know. And, and I just I can't do that. So I'm just I'm, I was going for the mustache thing. And um, it's it's fun. It's been a little different. You know, I'm yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm learning like, oh, you have to like trim parts of it. So that yes, you do your mouth yeah. and stuff like, yeah. Yes. So I'm learning unless a you're Sam Elliott. That's the only way you can get away with that. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. Oh, R.I.P. Ray Liotta. You know, yeah, that, that just happened today. A couple hours ago. Yeah, that's yeah, a, that was that was crazy. I just I got that. Um, I had saw a notification pop up and I thought, oh, man, yeah, isn't that old. He really what was no. seven. I can't remember what it 67. was. 67. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not super old, but. I think sometimes I think it's the mileage, not the years. 
Oh yeah, I'm sure he had a hell of a life. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, so. probably just fucking went for it. Yeah, I think probably what we saw in good in uh, Goodfellas that a lot of that was probably real. Yeah, so. he would be paranoid <laughs> all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, okay, well, let's <laughs> dive into some listener reviews. Okay, here. sounds good. This one is from Glass M. Imperiant. I, I, I don't know why you try to do that. I, I really don't. I'm sorry. I don't trust too. So this is a, a, a must for those interested in true crime and the super dot, dot, dot. That's all I can see. Um, it says, I discovered the show in summer 2021 and have been listening ever since. A transplant from Hollywood currently living in New Orleans. I started with the New Orleans season and then listened to the Hollywood season before devouring every other episode I could get my hands on. I'm now all caught up and eagerly awaiting the next installment. This podcast never fails to both inform and entertain me. And it's been a great comfort over the last two years of the global chaos. Yeah. I, love, I love both Troy's monologues and the discussion afterwards between Cody and Troy. And I'm also one of the people who listens to the end. I hope to <laughs> Alton, St. Louis, Villisca one day and all the other places mentioned in the current season and hope to catch up at the conference one year. Thank you both for all that you do. Well, thank you so much. Cool. Yeah. Um, I would say um, maybe visit Alton. You could probably skip St. Louis. And- <laughs> I mean, unless you're like. The list goes to a really short trip. You yeah, know. unless you're just doing like a quick tour or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah we, we could probably get away with that one. Um, but since it's a short episode, Troy, I'm going to read another review. Oh, sure. Okay. The, the, title, the title is just, I still love the show. And it's from uh, RWREA22. It says oh. Control Agent 86. It's Maxwell Smart. Corey, you missed it by that much. Don't worry, only us old folks will get it. Rick Ria. So I didn't understand somebody's um, screen name earlier that was Control Agent 86, but you missed my name. Got it. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, then Rick messed up your name. So, yeah, but I feel yeah. like <laughs> no, I know Rick. You would know Maxwell Smart, I would imagine. Like, yes. With- yeah, I didn't pay. I didn't, I don't think I caught it either. So. Okay. okay. It, um, it connected with him though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, Hey, I'm giving you shit just cause you gave us shit, but Rick, thank you so much. No, he's, yeah. No, Rick's great. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. Um, okay. I do have a review or I'm sorry. And an email here for our, our oh, okay. writer stuff. Um, it's a little bit long, but bear with me here. And okay. I, know, I know people give me shit sometimes for like, mispronouncing things and not being able to speak but all i would say <laughs> is like try reading on camera um and and yeah see how you do um <laughs> this this letter is from marlene it says hey guys your podcast is awesome i've always loved ghost stories and the way you tell them and explain how and who and why these ghosts could be haunting a place or you just say honestly there's no way a particular ghost could exist funnily i've never been interested in true crime stories but i Always seem to be very excited to hear you talk about it. I even bought the audiobook from Troy, Suffer the Children, and loved it. Oh, cool. I have still almost half the episodes to listen to, which is great. I've listened to the first two seasons, New Orleans season and there, but you know all these events together in such a short period is just comical. I also had a thought about women in white slash vanishing hitchhiker. I've always wondered why they are always in white. And the answer was that it was just an energy around them, but I don't quite accept that. It doesn't quite fit with the male vanishing in a white dress and men in a suit. Since, 
since these ghosts don't behave like your usual ghost, then why couldn't their clothing be tied to a different pattern? It's just my theory, so it's cool if you don't agree with that. I'm glad if you read this to the end because I'm quite bad with words. Anyway, you guys are great, and I hope you keep doing this for a long time to come. P.S. I do love Cody's inappropriate jokes. Kind <laughs> regards, M. Yeah, and so, Troy, that's like something we, we've talked about before, but I've see, I see a lot of memes pop up about it. It's like you never see a ghost like smoking a jewel and wearing skinny jeans. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, we talked about that, too. Yeah, you, you never know. see a ghost saying, like, it's Britney, bitch, at, at <laughs> or whatever. Well, um, not yet. Maybe someday. And not um, yet. But but I, I do often wonder about that is like, what it, what it, what is the issue? Like, what, was there like a... A, a, a bargain sale on ghosts or something going on and like we, we just don't tend to see too many that are old or, or, or recent newer more newer I, I i don't that's not necessarily accurate it's just okay. it's, it's really not and and this isn't even i i mean she's her her opinion about the women in white is just as valid as anything else and anything sure. i'm definitely anything i'm about to say um but i think that a lot of times um, there are lots of stories that are newer mm-hmm. and uh, uh, incidents that happen, encounters that people have that are newer. It's just they don't get publicized like a lot of the old stuff have gotten over sure. and over and over again. I mean, we talked about that a lot. I, I mean, I run into that kind of thing quite a bit, you know, when I'm doing research on a story, even if I, I've just learned to just go back and re-research, you know, pretty much everything because I find that so many things are wrong. So many things have, you know, have been popped up, you know, inaccurate or, you know, people did the best they could. They just didn't have the kind of resources that we have now. It's just that people rely so much on the same story being told over and over and over again that they don't even bother to go look. You know, I mean, I, I we talked about this and I'm not going to keep talking about it, but that happened to me with that mad gasser of Mattoon story that I told you about. You know, I mean, over and over and over again, people just kept telling that story and no one even bothered to look at that to see if that woman had a first name. Well, of course she did, but nobody ever looked because right. they just kept telling the story. And I think that's what happens with these old stories. That's why we're so familiar with, you know, some things other than others. Well, there could be there's there. Well, there are lots of stories out there that are great stories, but people are like, eh, I've never heard of that. Well, but don't you want to, <laughs> you know, and I think it's the same kind of thing. And eventually there will be newer stories that will, you know, be told and retold. I think it's just, they just don't have the the time behind them that, you know, all these other stories do. What do you what do you think you'll do? So I know that you have particular plans to haunt people if you can. What do you think will be like your your calling sign or like your way to show people you have passed on? Like what what are your plans for that? Mm. Hmm. I don't know yet. I haven't thought about that. But I'm gonna steal the pizza cutter from everybody's household. I'm gonna move <laughs> that. I'm gonna put it in in the bathroom or something. Yeah, be random. I'm gonna fuck with people that way, and that will be because like. And people always say like, uh, oh, like we, we were talking the other day where we my uh, my stepmother's house I was with all my siblings and they were saying like, oh, well, we saw this bird, you know, or wondering if that's your dad, all this kind of stuff. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send a flamingo 
So that way, no one <laughs> there'll has, be no mistake. Yeah, exactly. In the Midwest, if you see flamingo, that is me. And, and yeah, the yeah. people kind of like laughed as they're crying, you know, and because yeah, sure. I'm terrible and that's how I do things. But yeah, I was like, I'm just going to make sure there's no question about this. And and I don't know. I mean, who knows the rules, you know, when like, I know. And that's the thing. We don't we won't know until the time comes. It's just like, you know, when you think about Houdini setting up this elaborate, you know, code that he was going to pass on and you know none of us know how the rules work you know i mean we don't know if we're going to be able to do stuff like that i mean i hope i can i hope i can do something but i don't i think it's better not to not to make any hard plans i think so i think it'll be a thing where like when we get to the afterlife it's like cody you can have the best days of your entire life you can relive them again and in paradise or you could send this flamingo like you talked about. It. <laughs> right. Like, well, fuck. yeah, I know. Right. Uh huh. Okay, never mind. Well, Sorry, you guys no. are getting the flamingo. Um, I think I'm just going to go sit in this Irish pub for eternity then. So yeah, yeah, I think exactly. that'll be good for me. And you want to hide know, the we'll let the cutter, flamingo go. Or do you want to so. get pizza for the rest of your life and never, ever get fat? I'm really yeah, like, yeah, there you go. Well, sorry, sibling. Uh, yeah, it's got, it's got to be something like that. Otherwise, I mean, we would have clear evidence and things would, would come back. There, there has to be something greater than that. We, yeah. than what we are understanding. And that's, that's fine. That's I'm not, I'm not mad about that. You know, <laughs> I mean, fuck who, I don't want to know everything. Yeah. I don't think there's any point. I'd rather know it when I, when the time comes, I mean, I have questions. I have some things I would like to know when I get to the other side, Sure. you know, I've got some things that I I'm really needing to know, you know, black Dahlia. Hey, you want to know? Yeah. Something? Black Dahlia, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I got some things. So yeah. <laughs> I have some answers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, well, dude, that's all. Yeah, that let's I just have. wrap it up. Yeah. And then we'll um, we'll be back in two weeks and we'll talk more about the Donner Party. We'll come back with the second half of the, the story. Uh, we will uh, we'll we'll go over some things. We'll talk about some stuff. If you have any questions about the first half, we yeah. don't normally get to do this. If sure. people have any questions about the first half, send them along. Uh, email on um, yeah, that's um. That might be something that um, we could add into this next episode. We haven't been able to do that before. That could be so, fun. Yeah. So anyway, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, don't forget if you are shopping from the American Hauntings online store, whether it be for events or books or whatever, use the discount code of podcast. That's at AmericanHauntings.net. That'll get you to the bookstore. Uh, use that Use that that gives you 10% off um, for doing nothing, essentially. All you got to do is put that in. So it's like free money. Um, check us out on Patreon. Hey, that's what you could do with the money you save. Then you could become a Patreon supporter because Patreon supporters right now are listening to a completely different podcast in addition to this one uh, about uh, a murder that took place in 1900 in Iowa and the ghost stories that go along with it. Um, we've been doing a new episode every other week of that, and I've been torturing the hell out of Cody with it because it's got special effects and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so much more work than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Kind of like I know, but it's you know, great. it's great though. Uh, yeah, it's it is a lot of fun, and I think that it, it is something that it just came to me that was something we were missing uh, from Patreon. So we're gonna keep doing it, let much yeah. to Cody's dismay. I don't think uh, it's we gonna are stop. gonna keep doing it with different stories as soon as this one's done. But going so uh, well, I don't think we're we stop. just finished episode four, so we're 
you know, we still have a little ways to go on this one. So anyway, check that out. It's just patreon.com slash American hauntings. Uh, you could check that out and find out how to be a supporter. And uh, other than that, I think uh, I will sign off and let you wrap this thing up. That's it, man. Yeah, I have uh, about an hour long monologue of yours to um, edit, I believe, for this episode. So, yes, yes yeah. Thursday. So I'm going to get get going on that and get it ready for Tuesday. And um, hell, man. Yeah. No, this, this is great. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I let us know. How you yeah. like the format of, of this kind of thing? If this yeah. is cool, if you're well, we don't do too many of these double this season, we're not going to be doing a lot of double episodes. Right. So uh, but you know, since we are, we thought we'd do something different. So yeah, why not? Yeah. Cool. All right. Nope. Okay, well, thanks. Yeah, hit it uh, hit us up in two weeks and check out um the finale of uh the Donner Party and uh the Forlorn Hope. 